Bienvenue and welcome back to the land of desire. I'm your host, Diana, and we're picking up right where we left off as Julia and Paul Child return to the United States halfway through the composition of her ambitious cookbook. Hell and damnation! Why did we ever decide to do this anyway? Julia Child was back in America and she was out of patience. After four years abroad, working on what she hoped would be her great masterpiece, an encyclopedic guide to French cooking aimed at the adventurous American cook, Julia was ready to meet those adventurous American cooks and see what they were like. But what she found was a nightmare. The dismal American culinary landscape Julia had left behind so many years ago had somehow gotten worse than ever. Traditional home cooking was a thing of the past, or at least big frozen food wanted everyone to think so. Cooking was drudgery, just another chore on the list, and the smart housewife would do everything she could to speed up the process. Cooking meals from scratch when she could just open up a box and a can and stick the mixture in the microwave? That's like hand washing your t-shirts and running them against a washing board when you've got a washing machine in the garage. At every turn, Julia found a dining culture that valued speed and cost very much, and flavor not one bit. On the one hand, Julia loved the invention of the brand new American supermarket. Gleaming wall to wall with thousands of products, Julia could pick out her own produce without relying on an honest shopkeeper to do it for her. She could get all of her ingredients in one place instead of hopping around to a dozen market stalls. And anyway, Julia wasn't religiously opposed to canned or frozen foods on principle. There's nothing wrong with frozen peas or canned chicken stock for a weeknight meal. As it turned out, Julia was actually a big fan of instant mashed potatoes. Who knew? But there's only so much one could do with poor ingredients. As Julia wrote to a friend, it is just no fun to eat that stuff, no matter how many French touches and methods you put to it. It ain't French, it ain't good, and the hell with it. And oh, how much of that stuff there was. American chickens were enormous, but tasteless. Bread was bizarre and fluffy and weirdly sweet. Iceberg lettuce was the only lettuce, and it tasted and felt like styrofoam. But the worst offender, as Julia fired off in a letter to Simca, I do not like canned onions at all. I suggest that we say, we do not like canned onions, period. As her investigations into fish and meat over the years had warned her, many beloved stock ingredients simply weren't available. Julia wasn't surprised that she had to struggle to find veal, but shallots? She really couldn't find shallots? Worst of all, Americans never drank wine. Eventually, she threw up her hands and just said, use vermouth instead. Because America in the 1950s couldn't whip up so much as an omelet, but everybody could mix a good martini. Regardless of the quality of the ingredients, Americans in the 1950s were hell-bent on combining them in the most revolting way imaginable as though cooking for flavor was some kind of foreign concept. 
Remember the Lacey Valentine salad recipe, which was published the year Julia Child was born? A gelatin salad with piped mayonnaise and canned fruit? Ugh. Well, nearly 50 years later, one recipe for a 20-minute roast suggested, I swear I'm not making this up, slicing up great hunks of Spam, cooking them in orange marmalade, and then topping them with Lil Smokies and canned peaches. Truly, America was a lost nation. The real problem was, Thanks to America's obsession over saving time at the cost of everything else, most Americans, Julia realized, don't know anything at all, nothing, about the techniques of good cooking. Perhaps America's aspiring cooks weren't entirely to blame, because all of the cookbooks available in the United States were just simply awful. They were vague, inaccurate, sloppy. Julia, Simca, and Louisette had slaved over their French masterpiece for years to ensure their book was scientifically accurate, friendly, and reliable. Yet their beautiful tome, Julia was coming to realize, simply wasn't going to work. Despite their best efforts, they'd still made way too many assumptions about America's ability to cook. Or even, based on recipes like 20-Minute Roast, America's common sense. I am deeply depressed, Julia wrote her friends, gnawed by doubts, and I feel that all of our work may just lay a big rotten egg. Her worst fears were realized in a letter in March 1958. Their prospective publisher turned them down. The book was rejected. We'll just have to do it over, Julia declared. She and Simka gravely decided to revisit the entire project, trimming as many grandiose recipes as they could, breaking down every part of the recipes even further into smaller, simpler instructions, and making the project as approachable as possible to this nation of hopeless beginners. But right as Julia began to get some steam going on her grand revisions, however, she received another blow. Because, if you can believe it, Paul had been transferred again to Norway. Listeners, whenever I travel to a European city, I always try to seek out a meal at that city's oldest surviving restaurant. Sometimes this leads me to a tourist trap, but oftentimes it leads me to a pretty venerable establishment which serves up traditional dishes which best represent that nation's homegrown cuisine. A few years ago, I toured Scandinavia for the first time, and I had an absolutely terrific meal in Stockholm's oldest restaurant. Anyone who's been to Ikea knows that Swedish meatballs with lingonberries and gravy is an admirable dish, and the meals I ate in Stockholm were a delight. So I was excited to try out the wonders that Norwegian cuisine had to offer, and I still remember arriving at the oldest restaurant in Oslo and discovering Norwegian food is awful. As a friend warned Julia before her first meal, this won't be food you love. After a decade of beef bourguignon, the childs were not prepared for the land of moose jerky. Paul Child's verdict after a typical night out? 
Vegetables, lousy. Salads, lousy. Meat, lousy. I feel you, Paul. Oslo was a very hungry vacation for me, too. The good news is, with absolutely no local delicacies to distract her, Julia set right to work editing the entire manuscript. Julia's capacity for work reached new heights during the Oslo years, and she and Paul shied away from their normal socializing to focus on work. I am purposely being a bit of a mole, she wrote, so I can get this book done as fast as possible. When she wasn't in the kitchen roasting yet another dozen chickens, Julia fired off letters to Simca, to Louisette, to her friends back home, to potential editors, devoting every ounce of energy towards her single purpose, finishing the cookbook. On September 1st, 1959, it finally happened. The manuscript for the great cookbook was finished. 750 pages of sheer culinary genius looking for a home. For a brief moment, Julia Child took a minute to just rest. She puttered around in the garden. She played tennis. She took deep breaths and enjoyed Norway in the fall. Yet as any writer knows, finishing a work only triggers a new kind of anxiety. What do I do now? Deprived of good friends, good food, and now good work, Julia was drifting and consumed by the worry that her book would never be published. Please forgive me for a small tangent, but I have to take a moment and apologize for editing out an important part of Julia's story. Avis Devoto, Julia Child's best friend. Years ago, back in the States, Avis's husband, an important and influential critic, went on a wild tear in Fortune magazine about crappy kitchen knives. It was a subject near and dear to Julia's heart, and she'd written a letter to the critic. Enclosed in the envelope, taped to a piece of cardboard, was an excellent little kitchen knife she'd picked up in France for his enjoyment. Times were different before 9-11. To Julia's surprise, the critic's wife, Avis, wrote back, and their correspondence deepened into a friendship which would last the rest of their lives. I can't do Avis's story justice without making this miniseries about 8,000 episodes long, but I would encourage all of you to read the book, As Always, Julia, which is the collection of letters between Avis and Julia. I wanted to go on this tangent because we're about to reach one of those heroic moments when a best friend transforms into a heroic friend. You see, Avis Devoto, when she wasn't Julia's best friend and greatest cheerleader, was also a book editor who knew all the publishing houses in town. While Julia twiddled her thumbs and paced around her kitchen in Oslo, Avis secretly hit the streets with her own manuscript of the cookbook, evangelizing to every publisher who would give her the time of day. Without Julia's permission, or even her knowledge, Avis sent a copy of the manuscript to an editor at her new employer, Knopf. There, the manuscript made its way into the hands of a young, upstart book editor with a knack for picking winners. Judith Jones was only 35 at the time, 
but a few years earlier she'd reached into a pile of discarded manuscripts and she pulled out a little work called Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank. Now Judith Jones was taken more seriously. In addition to being a rising star in the book publishing industry, Judith Jones was also that perfect test subject, an adventurous, sophisticated woman with an interest in cooking. After a month of cooking out of the manuscript, Judith knew she'd found a winner. The woman who gave the world Anne Frank's diary said of Julia's cookbook, this was the book I had been waiting for all my life. I knew we had to publish it. On May 9, 1960, Avis called Julia long distance to give her the news. She did it. The book was sold at last. This was the final nudge that the Childs needed. A few months later, Paul Child finally resigned from the State Department after nearly 30 years traveling the world. Julia Child was coming home to stay and to share her masterpiece with the world. In the few years which had passed between Julia's last visit to the United States and her homecoming, something had changed in America. The election of John F. Kennedy signaled a new direction, a move away from the conservatism and isolationism of the 1950s and towards a more curious, sophisticated future. When the new first lady, Jackie Kennedy, hired the French chef René Verdon to manage the most influential menus in the country, you could almost see Americans sick of salmon jello and piped mayonnaise perking up out of interest. Julia didn't know it, but the delays caused by her grand revision were actually a blessing in disguise. When I came to America in 1958, Chef Verdon said, people were talking more about gravy than sauces, but that changed fast. Mrs. Kennedy, she was like a lot of wives, very interested in understanding French food. She really wanted to talk about it and learn about it. Just a few months after Chef Verdon arrived at the White House, a package arrived on Julia's doorstep. She ripped it open and screamed. Mastering the Art of French Cooking by Simone Beck, Louisette Bertol, and Julia Child. 732 pages representing her life's work, her greatest passion, her dream. For now, it was her precious solitary jewel. In only a few short weeks, it would become a sensation. In 1961, Craig Claiborne, food critic for the New York Times, was the most influential food authority in America. Women read him to know what to cook, men read him to know what they were eating. So everyone took notice when, on October 16th, Craig Claiborne announced the arrival of the most comprehensive, laudable, and monumental work on French cuisine. Mastering the Art of French Cooking was the definitive work for non-professionals. This work, Claiborne wrote, is brilliant. Within weeks, Julia and Simka, newly arrived in the United States, set off on a whirlwind book tour, giving demonstrations across the nation. 
Their experiences in Le Trois Gourmand paid off again as they dazzled housewives from San Francisco to St. Louis, selling out every copy of their cookbook along the way. America went nuts. A few weeks later, the real breakthrough came as Julia and Simka appeared on an episode of the Today Show. Simka was a bit stiff and nervous, but to everyone's surprise, the six-foot-two lumbering Julia was marvelous on television. She was so relaxed, so casual, so funny. And best of all, she was cooking things that looked absolutely delicious. People were reading about what the Kennedys were eating, Julia recounted later, and I happened to come along just at the right time. That may have been the case, but the age of Julia was just beginning. In 1963, the local television station in Boston, WGBH, broadcast a curious little show, The French Chef. It was unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. Here was the faintly ridiculous figure of Julia Child, hunched over in a tiny studio kitchen set, loping about with her funny mannerisms and squeaky voice, and was she... was she making an omelette? on live television? From the very start, viewers could not get enough. The morning after the show's premiere, WGBH received no fewer than 27 letters from viewers demanding more Julia Child. Loved watching her catch the frying pan as it almost went off the counter, wrote one viewer. You are the only person I have ever seen who takes a realistic approach to cooking, wrote another. What could be more inspiring than the sight of this awkward, adorable woman whipping together a souffle? If she could do it, why not me? By the time the fourth episode had aired, over 600 fan letters had arrived at the station. Julia remembers... The station is getting a bit worried as it costs them about 10 cents an answer, but luckily, quite a few of the letters have pledges inside. Before long, Julia was being recognized on the streets of Boston. She continued to develop her professional skills, with Paul timing her with a stopwatch to make sure she didn't dwell too long on a certain step. But nevertheless, Julia made mistakes, and her mistakes made her famous. In one early episode, Julia tried to flip a potato pancake, only to dump the whole thing onto the floor. But with a wink to the camera, Julia racked. But with a wink to the camera, Julia cracked. Oh, that didn't go very well, but you can always pick it up. If you are alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? As more and more local television networks picked up the show, Julia's legend grew and grew. Chuck Williams, founder of Williams-Sonoma, remembers how his sales would spike based on the dishes she'd featured that week. The program was aired on KQED in San Francisco once a week, but we never knew what was going to be on. But by the next morning, we'd know, because our customers were watching it. They'd come into the store demanding a Charlotte mold or whatever pan Julia had used, and it had to be the exact size, because they had to make what she'd made that night. Home cooks weren't the only ones grateful to Julia. 
We French chefs have to thank Julia a lot," said Andre Soldner, chef of New York City's legendary Lutece. I don't think she was the best chef. She didn't have to be. It was not her role. But she showed home cooks that French cooking is not always sophisticated. Roger Fessaguet of La Caravelle wrote, "I'm sure there were some older chefs who thought, 'Ah,、uh, this is a joke.' Even more so because she was a woman. But come on, look at what she did for us. When the young rising star Jacques Pepin thumbed through his copy of Mastering the Art of French Cooking for the first time, I read it like you would read a novel, turning the pages fast late into the night. I couldn't believe that someone had broken it all down like that. I was jealous. The supermarket struggled to keep up with demand as well. According to one supermarket owner, 60% of the items in this store weren't here 10 years ago. Only a decade removed from the era of the 20-minute roast, ugh, one market owner in D.C. griped that if you don't have at least 50 assorted high-powered imported cheeses, you're not in business. While Julia famously quipped, "Every woman should kiss her butcher." Julia's own butcher back in Cambridge kept an autographed copy of her book on the counter, just in case anyone needed to consult her recipes. America couldn't get enough of Julia. Her book was flying off the shelves. By 1966, mastering the art of fine cooking had sold a staggering 300,000 copies. During the third season of The French Chef, Julia received an Emmy. Finally, just in time for everyone's Thanksgiving dinner, Julia reached the pinnacle of 1960s American fame. She was featured on the cover of Time magazine. Allow me to quote: Her viewers on 104 educational TV stations across the U.S. watch her every move, forgive her every gaffe, and. In a word, adore her. Manhattan matrons refuse to dine out the night she is on. So good is she that men who have not the slightest intention of going to the kitchen for anything but ice cubes watch her for pure enjoyment. Julia Child's TV cooking shows have made her a cult from coast to coast and put her on a first-name basis with her fans. There was, however, one place where Julia's name remained unknown: France. As you might expect, France itself had little interest in learning how to cook French cuisine from an American. Back on her home estate, Simca enjoyed little of the fame that Julia now encountered, though she certainly enjoyed the fortune, thanks to her share of the cookbook profits. And it was just as well. For it was the cookbook fortunes and not the fame, which helped Julia's true dream come true. Halfway through a season of The French Chef, Julia and Paul packed up their bags and flew to visit Simca and her husband Jean in their French country home. Everyone thought they were insane to leave in the middle of so much, but Julia and Paul reminded themselves, no one's more important than people. Simca and Jean were spending that summer at Brama Fam, a farmhouse built in the 1700s, whose name translates to "the cry of hunger." 
There were certainly a lot of hunger cries that summer as Julia and Simka spent nights in the kitchen working side by side the way they used to do back in the earliest days of their friendship. One afternoon, the two couples spent the evening outside, eating fish souffle and drinking excellent wine, breathing in the aroma of the gardens, when Jean made a suggestion. Why don't they build a little cottage on the corner of Bramafam? Julia's heart leapt. To be in Provence next to Simca would be a dream come true. I could already imagine spending my winter months here, curing the olives from our trees, cooking à la Provençale with garlic, tomatoes, and wild herbs. Paul and Julia used their cookbook money to buy the old potato patch and turn it into, as she put it, a house built on friendship. They named the house La Pichoune, or That Little Thing. Whenever she needed to retreat from America, from her celebrity, from her responsibilities, Julia returned to La Pichoune, to the kitchen she built from scratch and the gardens she grew with such care. To tell the story of the rest of Julia Child's life would take many more episodes, and I'm sure my French listeners who have never heard of Julia Child before are eager for me to move on to another subject. But suffice it to say, Julia Child was one of the most influential Americans of the 20th century. Few people have done more to change the way Americans eat, the way they cook, the way they approach life. Yes, I know. America is still a land of McDonald's and Uncrustables sandwiches. But America is now also a land of white asparagus, of salads with warm goat cheese, of baguettes and frise and roasted duck and creme brulee. Every major supermarket in America sells fresh fish and shallots. In 1956, Julia wrote to Simca that people just do not have bottles of white wine all the time to use in cooking. If they bought one for a bit of cooking, they wouldn't know what to do with the rest of it. Exactly 60 years later, Americans consumed 4.24 billion bottles of wine. Julia Child made cooking into a joy and eating into an art. I fell in love with the public, the public fell in love with me, and I tried to keep it that way, she said. Well, Julia, you succeeded. The French Chef became the longest-running program in the history of public television. Julia won an Emmy, a Peabody Award, a National Book Award, the U.S. government's highest civilian honor, the U.S. Presidential Medal of Freedom, and the French equivalent, the Légion d'honneur. Her cookbook collection rests in Harvard University's archives. My favorite honor, however, came after her retirement at which point the Smithsonian Institute relocated her entire home kitchen to its museum, the whisks, the stockpots, and over 800 knives. Julia continued working for so long that nearly 40 years after her television debut, I was able to watch her live on PBS, standing next to Jacques Papin, deciding how best to carve up the great chicken in front of them. For decades, Julia appeared on television, wrote newspaper columns, gave interviews, wrote her memoirs, wrote a dozen other cookbooks, and founded institutes dedicated to food and wine. 
Finally, in 2004, at the age of 91, Julia Child passed away. Her final meal was a bowl of French onion soup. Just before her death, Knopf released a 40th anniversary edition of her great cookbook. Mastering the art of French cooking had sold over one million copies. After a lifetime of hard work and dedication, Julia Child taught her nation her most important lesson. We should enjoy food and have fun. Bon appétit! As the first few copies of Mastering the Art of French Cooking flew off the shelves in the mid-1960s, one American housewife picked up a copy off the shelf and couldn't believe what she was seeing. Like Julia, Mary Jane Nichols had grown up on standard American fare. Like Julia, Jane moved to Europe after World War II and fell in love with the food she found there. Jane, like Julia, was stationed in Germany in 1954, but she spent her free time exploring France with her gourmand civil servant husband. When she returned home, Jane ached for the know-how to create the dishes she'd experienced abroad, and she raced home with her copy of Mastering the Art of French Cooking, thrilled to learn the secrets at last. As so many millions of housewives were doing across America, Jane worked her way through Julia's masterpiece, learning how to create beef bourguignon, coco vent, even whip up a baguette in her own oven in the middle of Fort Worth, Texas. Julia's cookbook changed Jane's life and inspired a lifetime love of cooking, which Jane passed on to her children and eventually her grandchildren. Mary Jane Nichols was my grandmother, and Julia Child was her hero. This past year, it was difficult for me to go up to visit my grandmother, who lived quite a long way away. My parents would frequently play episodes of this podcast to stir up happy memories in my grandmother, both of France and of me. In her final hours, I wasn't able to be at her side, but my mother was. My mother brought out her phone and she played my grandmother episode after episode of this show so that she could hear the voice of her granddaughter describing the country she loved so dearly. It has been so hard to bring myself to come back to the show because the woman who taught me to love Julia Child was alive when I recorded the last episode and is not alive for this one. After receiving the news that my grandmother had passed, I put on my coat and I headed to the grocery store. That night, I spent hours over the stove, simmering a pot of my grandmother's favorite, Julia Child's recipe for beef bourguignon. I didn't take any shortcuts. We sat down with our plates and a glass of good red wine shortly after midnight. As Julia Child once said, I think careful cooking is love, don't you? The loveliest thing you can cook for someone who's close to you is about as nice a valentine as you can give. This is my valentine for you, Amma. I love you.